0: Welcome to Studying the Song, a podcast to help musical theater actors figure out what to sing and how to sing it so that you shine in your audition, one-woman show, or leading role. My friends, talent and passion are only the beginning. I believe there is freedom in preparation. I believe that when you put in the work, practice the skills, and do the research, something amazing happens. You become so prepared in your craft that you become unstoppable. In this podcast, I want to give you the tools and skills to create a powerful audition book that showcases your artistry and actually gets you work. I want you to feel totally at home reading the musical score of a show, and I want to help you define your unique artistic voice. Consider me your own personal vocal coach in your earbuds, cheering you on and bringing you the reality checks you need along the way. I'm Corey Yamaoka, and I'm so excited to be walking this journey with you. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to Studying the Song, the podcast that helps musical theater singers figure out what to sing and how to sing it so you can shine in the audition room. I'm your host, Corey Yamaoka. In today's episode, I am interviewing Broadway veteran Thomas James O'Leary. Tom is best known for playing the Phantom in Broadway's The Phantom of the Opera for more than a thousand performances. He played the title role in the national tour for just over a year in the late 90s before taking over the role on Broadway for two and a half years, including the 10th anniversary celebration in 1998. Prior to performing Phantom... Thomas originated the role of Captain Schultz in Broadway's original production of Miss Saigon. He was also in the first national companies of Les Miserables, directed by John Carrad and Trevor Nunn, and in Chess, directed by Des Makinoff. He's also an award-winning director in the Los Angeles theater community and a principal faculty member at AMDA LA, um, and he's in the union of uh, the SDC, SDC, AEA, and SAG-AFTRA. Y'all this is an amazing interview. I met Tom first when we were working together at AMDA several years ago and we just hit it off right away. And when I started this podcast, I knew I wanted to interview him because of his amazing experience on these groundbreaking musicals. And he's just such a nice guy and has so many great stories about being in the business. Now you've probably noticed that this episode is longer than most of my shows. And I just want to say It's worth every minute. Like I pared it down as much as I could, but I love all of the stories that he shared. In this interview, he really, Tom pulls back the veil on the audition process in New York and for Broadway. And he reveals so many great stories just about like pursuing the work and overcoming, comparing himself to others. Um, The power of having a good attitude and like how that gets you seen by the right people, how to approach acting through song, what he's looking for from actors in auditions and his own acting breakthroughs that finally landed him the lead role of the phantom so if you're a musical theater actor trying to make your way in the professional level of theater this episode is for you tom was a self-professed late bloomer and i just think his slow climb to stardom is a really encor- encouraging story to hear for those of us who feel like it's not happening fast enough it's like the story of my life i want to go faster but We should all take heart because good things take time, and Tom is living proof of that. So you might want to listen to this in two sittings, or you might want to settle in and take it all in at once. That would be awesome. I promise you, you're going to get so much out of it. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Tom. Thomas James O'Leary, welcome, and thank you for being here.
1: Well, thank you, Corey. It's so great to see you. It's
0: great to see you. Um, When I started this podcast, I knew that you're one of the people that I wanted to interview. Um, Mm. We worked together and met each other at AMDA, and I was your accompanist for your musical theater styles class. And um, I just was so impressed by how you taught and how you related to the kids. And then after working with you for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, someone said, you know, who that is. <laughs> I said, no, I don't know who that is. And you're like, he was the phantom. I'm like what? The phantom? Yes. The phantom on Broadway. And so then from that point on, I was like, I just felt so honored that I got to accompany you. Oh, my God. (laughs) You have not only have you played the title role in the longest running Broadway musical, Phantom of the Opera, for over a thousand performances. You've also worked with theater royalty like Hal Prince come on we teach yeah. hell prints in our musical yeah. theater history classes right and but you also have like all these lessons about auditioning and just the journey of being an actor and then you're also an award-winning director and like i said an amazing educator so i just feel like what better person is there to come on this show oh my god and <laughs>
1: All right, stop it. All right,
0: so (laughs) let's start with just like, how did this journey begin? Like, we don't come out of the womb singing on Broadway, right? So did you already, did you always know you wanted to be an actor? Did you have, you know, doubts about your journey as an actor? Share with us how you began and came to acting.
1: I mean, I didn't even know that I could sing until I was a junior in high school. And we were, we needed to do a fundraiser. So we did this variety show and they needed more guys you know they always need more guys in those kinds of shows in high school and so they kind of roped me into like participating and then they they found out and I found out like oh I actually have a decent singing voice so they kept giving me more parts and so that's how I kind of accidentally found out that I could sing and I had no interest in it I mean you know I used to lip sync to my favorite songs on the radio and stuff mm-hmm. with my my best friends and Stuff like that, but I, I never thought that I would end up going into entertainment at all. And so when I went to University of Connecticut, I thought, well, let me take an acting class and see how it goes. And it went well, and I got cast in my first show. I was in Jesus Christ Superstar College at UConn, and I had like the smallest role in the show. I was like the soldier who... Whipped Jesus every other time, you know. <laughs> I wasn't even an apostle, yeah. you know? <laughs> So that's how it started, and, and I was like, "Yeah, I think I want to major in this." So I majored in it.
0: So then, what? How did you decide that you wanted to go to New York and like really make this your thing? What was? How did you make that decision, and what was that like when you were there?
1: My journey was kind of slow. It's like a lot of the a lot of my friends who I graduated UConn with went right to New York City and I chickened out. I was like, "Ah, I don't think I'm ready for that. Mm. And, and, you know, when I got into like, my mind was focused on really serious acting by the end of my time at UConn. And I felt like I had just started scratching the surface with like really good acting. And I thought I want to learn more about this before I go to the big city. So I auditioned for a bunch of grad programs. And I ended up choosing Trinity Rep Conservatory in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, it just seemed like a really good program. They had great teachers and it was a 2-year program and I did that. Mm. And then I stayed for a third year and worked with the theater company there, Trinity Square Repertory Company. And um that was great training for me as an actor and as a director. It was the first time I started directing too. And I just had like like super instructors who would like take the train in from New York City and you know, spend the whole day with us. And some of them were, you know, local, and it was a great theater company to be able to work with. And, you know, Richard Jenkins was like the star of the theater at that time. And he's been nominated for an Oscar three times now. And he was my, you know, my hero. He still is my hero. Um, so, so, and then finally, I, I thought, okay, I think it's time. And so I moved to New York.
0: How old were you when you moved? Because I know so many students and just, you know, it, it's like the thing to do if you want to pursue it at its highest level. And it's hard to just make that decision. So how old were you when you moved to the city?
1: Yeah, good question. So, so I was 25.
0: Okay. So still pretty young.
1: Kind of relative to my friends who I went to UConn with. They'd already been there for three years. Right. You know, in the long run, it turned out fine. <laughs> you know, I did okay eventually. Yeah, but at pretty first, good. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I waited. I was kind of, I always called myself a late bloomer in those in my 20s. Because, you know, I didn't move to New York till 25. And it took me about three years before I got a big deal show. And what show? Well, the big deal, my first big show was the first national tour of Les Mis. Les Mis had just opened on Broadway so I'd heard a lot about it. They're on the front cover of every magazine, and it was in May, May of 1987, so they just opened on Broadway. So I got my ticket uh, with one of my best friends. We worked it out to get our tickets for as soon as I got back to New York that May, and one day I'm sitting in the green room with my friends, who I was finishing up this children's theater experience, and I'm sitting in the green room, and I'm I'm reading the article in Time magazine about Les Mis, you know, the biggest show of like the last 10 years or whatever. And there's a picture of the whole cast on the on the on the cover. And this is this by the way is so unlike me, but I just had this kind of like I don't know, I guess it was like a spiritual moment and I looked at the photo and I showed my friends and I said, "I'm going to be in this show." Wow. And, and you know, and by the end of that year I was in that show. It was crazy to you know when I think back uh, like how arrogant of me in that moment but it just felt like I have a really strong feeling like I'm going to be in this show hmm. and then I saw it and I fell in love with it and then there was an EPA uh, for the first national tour of Les Mis like that same month I think May or June and EPA equity principal audition and it was my first EPA Wow. I was a nervous wreck, you know, and it's for Les it's like the first national tour limit. So there are hundreds of people. You don't make an appointment for an EPA, you're just waiting in line. I had my 16 bars of high flying adored from, <laughs> yes. from 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 A <laughs> And um it was like I knew it was a good choice for that. So it's like okay. It wasn't too high. I was nervous about singing anything too high. I was, yeah. And um, and one after another, people are in and out, in and out, in and out. And it turned out this EPA was for Andy Zerman, who was one of the major casting directors at Johnson, Lyft, and Zerman. They were one of the biggest agencies in town throughout all of the 80s. They ended up being the casting agency for all of the big mega musicals that Cameron Mackintosh produced. So um, I go in. I do my 16 bars. I'm ready to leave because everyone else was in and out, in and out. And I was trained to like, yeah, it's going to be in and out. Just sing your 16 bars, say, thank you, go. And he stopped me and said, what else do you have? Hmm. And I was so thrown. I was like, oh my God, I just got back from doing nine months of children's theater. It's like, you're lucky I got this 16 bars together. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I said, well, I have the only home I know uh, in Shenandoah, which I loved to sing.
0: It's a beautiful song, and
1: yeah. And he said, "Great, do that." And and I had to be honest with him. And this is so interesting. Like when someone asks, like, "What else do you have?" and you know, like, it's because they're interested. You know, just for your listeners, like, keep in mind that's a good thing. That means like they like something in what you did. And so I guess I felt confident enough to just be honest with him. And I said, it's been a long time since I've sung this. And he said, it's okay. You can stand by the piano and read it off the sheet music. I was like, okay. And I did and it. And it went well. <laughs> it was like, I did. And I was even emotional with the, with the singing it. And the next day he called me on the phone and he said, you know, want to give you a call back. Didn't have an agent. So that's casting director calling me directly on the phone. Today it would be email. but. And I went in for my first call back, and it went well. And then my final call back, I botched it. Oh no, what happened? It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing another one show in uh, Summerstock up in northern New York. And I had to take three tiny planes, three little puddle jumpers to like get back to New York in time like I had one day that I took off from rehearsals to fly back audition for it and fly back to Potsdam, New York to, you know, and I thought it was such a big deal doing all that. It made me crazy. It just made me crazy getting up at five in the morning and flying back on three different planes to get into New York city. And my sub, my apartment was sublet and I'm like warming up in a public bathroom. And it was, I was a mess. I was just a hot mess basically. And I was not centered. Let's put it that way. I was not grounded. I felt shaky And I let my nerves get to me. I psyched myself out, basically. Mm -hmm. John Caird was like the big deal British director who who had worked with Trevor Nunn. Both of them directed the Broadway company. John Caird was focused on this national tour. He could not have been nicer, by the way, Like, and I got to audition for a lot of the British directors over my career, throughout my career. And it's so interesting. It's like, no offense to American directors, but I'm one now, but, but they were so nice. They would always get up from behind the table and come over to you and shake your hand either before or after you sang and said, so yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself. And it's like, oh, oh." so I was so not prepared for that. Um, he gave me an adjustment on one of my songs. I did it. He said, that went better. That was much better. But I didn't get it. You know, I didn't get the show. And I was devastated. I had a lot of shame about that, I think.
0: But you did do this show.
1: So, <laughs> yes. So it's always like late bloomer, late mm. bloomer. Yes. Yeah, so the next time there was an EPA opportunity for the same casting director. It was for the Broadway company of Chess. Chess was a big hit in London. They were bringing it to New York. Uh, I went in, I learned um, Pity the Child from Chess. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. I was working with a vocal coach. She helped me out with it. And as you know, that's really high. Um, yes. And I found out I could actually hit the notes. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know, but I think a lot of it's because it's kind of a rock, It has more of a rock pop sound. But I got so into the acting of it that it helped me sing the high notes, like literally like Pity the Child, you know, as some people know, it's a very angry song focused on his mother. And I just substituted my father for whatever reasons that what my relationship was like with my father, who had already passed away, but I still had some stuff and it worked for me. And I went in and I sang that for Andy Zerman, the same casting director who originally called him Philly Miz.
0: Let's pause for a second. What you're saying is something that's so important that actually tapping into the emotion of that allowed your voice to find a new register that it could sing in. And then I stress this so much with students that, you know, our voices respond naturally to whatever emotions we're going through. And, you know, if you're calling out or you're warning someone that's about Mm. to be in danger, your pitch goes way up and you're calling so that it will pierce across, you know, a parking lot or whatever it is. And that when we're singing in that high range, there has to be some sort of urgency to it. And so you're saying tapping into these emotions about your dad allowed you to discover this new part of your voice.
1: Totally, It was like, I could not do the song. I couldn't sing those notes if I wasn't. Every time I tried just singing it, it, I didn't have the notes. Mm. But so I always had to start with like, okay, my personalization of who I'm singing to or about. And then I just let them have it. You know, everything I always wanted to say. (laughs) You know, And it was like, okay, that's what acting is, you know? And it Mm. allowed, yes, you're totally right. You're totally right. By the way, I use your language a lot now about calling out which I learned from you is a great way of helping people to belt without using the word belt. You yes. know? It's like calling out. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So yeah. So I, if this happens occasionally, I sang this song for Andy and after I was done, he said, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with this production, meaning if I'm going to be able to call you back or not, but you need to keep singing that song. And every once in a while, you get that gift where somebody in the business, in the industry. And so it's great when your teacher tells you, but sometimes you'll believe it more when a casting director or agent tells you. And he had already heard me sing a few things. And he was like, oh, that's your song right now. You need to keep using that. And believe me, I did. I mean, I had worked with a coach and had like a lot of what you're probably doing. Like, she helped me like build my book. And I had like every genre, like two of every genre by the time that audition happened. But you know what? That song ended up getting me, you know, indirectly some, you might say, but sometimes directly 12 years of work. Yeah, My 12 years of doing one, you know, long running musical after another came from that one song. If you find it, if you find that one song. Now, granted, that song was not right at all for like Rodgers and Hammerstein, but for the shows that were happening at that time that I discovered I was right for, finally, <laughs> you know, finally I'm right for something, you know, it's like that was the song that got me one show after another. And, and I'll just add another something. And that's, I used to audition for people before that and like serious theater stuff or whatever. And I would get these, you know, I wasn't getting called back or I'd get called back, but I wouldn't book the job. And some of that was, I found out later because I wasn't acting well enough through song. And some of it I found out was, and I found out because one of the casting directors told a friend of mine, oh yeah, I met Tom. You know, he auditioned for me. Oh my God, he's so talented. And she said, but he's a little intense. (laughs) It's like, that was really weird for me to hear he's a little intense and i guess i was and i probably still am i ha- like i get really passionate about things and i i wasn't good at at first at just bringing in my warm charming self i'd be very yes. serious about the work
0: which is a good quality
1: here's what happened the intense shows came to broadway Les Mis, chess uh, miss Saigon, yep. Femme of the opera it was like, it was my time. And sometimes that's, that's, you know, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared because you never know when the right show is going to line up with, you know, what you're right for.
0: Literally the previous episode just came out yesterday, talking about knowing your niche as a performer and that the power of knowing like you're intense, Okay, I'm just gonna be me and it's coming off as intense to people, but I'm mm. not gonna try to change that. Right. This song, I just somehow I connect to it and it's making my voice soar and find new finding new areas of singing, and it's in this rock musical kind of vibe. Okay, I've done the work, I have the all the other categories of songs, but this is somehow becoming something that defines me or part of what I'm offering every time mm. I go in, right? And then right, people right. say, Oh, that Tom—he's intense and he has those screaming high notes. And then, like you said, these shows come up and they're like, "We know just who to call." He's the guy that does that. That's your niche.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you put it that way because it's—it's <laughs> so true. It's so true. And that's my experience. That's what happened to me. So, chess. The audition for chess came. He said, "You need to keep using that song." He called me back. Audition for Trevor Nunn, one of the biggest, you know, British directors ever. Yep. same thing. He gets up from behind the table. It's like, Oh, hi. what made you pick that monologue? He asked me, you know, and I just like, get good at being able to answer questions <laughs> from the director. Cause you know, I kept thinking like, they're not going to talk to me. I just have to go and do my work and say, thank you. And every once in a while, they like really want to chat you up. And that's something I I think no one taught me that.
0: So well, they're going to be working with you theoretically, right? There's it someone that they can yeah. converse with and can take yeah. a note and all that. Yeah. yeah
1: exactly so what happened getting back to les mis how did les mis happen a few days right after that because i think i was in the running for at least ensemble in chess and that would have been my first broadway show like three days later i got a call from Andy zerman i'm cleaning apartments that was one of my jobs that was my my you know day job at that time was cleaning apartments i had my own little thing i had like you know 12 clients and i could you know cancel someone or reschedule if I had an audition so it worked for me but I was literally cleaning someone's toilet when I got the call I guess it must have been my pager or something and I because there were no cell phones and I called back and I got the message Andy Zerman needs me to call him so I call Andy Zerman and he says we just lost one of the swings on the first national tour of Les Mis they're in rehearsal now. They're like five weeks into rehearsal. We need to replace him today. I'm calling you and two other people in. Sing Pity the Child. Be here at four o'clock. That's how quick it was. I went oh. in at four o'clock. There were two other people and me. Sang Pity the Child. They checked my high notes. And um, and then Andy called me an hour later. And that's when I was cleaning a toilet mm-hmm. and said, welcome to Les Mis. And I <laughs> was like, so that was my big first show you know my first production contract
0: but how did you choose that over being on Broadway in chess
1: it wasn't at all clear that you know I was going to get in chess they weren't making an offer yet Uh there was no offer you know it turned out fine because chess on Broadway flopped and I Les Mis was my favorite show at the time it was like I would do anything to be in that show now being a swing was one of the hardest things I've ever done Share
0: with us about that. Yeah. Because some people, some people are very suited to that and that becomes part of their niche. And like one of the things like people know, like, oh my God, that person's an amazing swing. If you need anything like that, go to that if person.
1: You, like, I guess I had these qualities. Um, I mean, acting wise, I was somewhat versatile. I could do a lot of different things. I was thought that was a bad thing. I would say, you know, like master of none, but I was like, okay, yeah, I can play all these different kinds of roles. And I had a pretty rangy voice. People didn't even know whether to qualify me, call me a a baritone with high notes or a tenor, you know, and I've gotten both. And I still get both if I sing for somebody. And it turned out to be a good fit because I was super committed to like being really organized and getting all the details of every single role. But I call it basic training in musical theater. Um, I tell my students, I cried for the first two weeks in my hotel room. I really did. I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this. This is impossible. How can I ever learn 14 males and each one was playing 15 roles? I mean, Les Mis, you know, it's like everyone plays 100 roles, you know. Yeah. So I'm I'm understanding all 14 men in the ensemble. I had to learn seven at first and then the other seven. And because there was another male swing who focused first on the other seven. But eventually I learned all 14. And that meant learning each and everyone's harmonies, their track on uh, their, their blocking on the barricade was like one of the hardest things to learn because it would be dangerous if I took the wrong step, you know, all that stuff, it, be, it ended up uh, it, eventually, it was very exciting, especially when I started going on and, you know, and people, I mean, when you go on as a swing the first time, if, if no one gets hurt. you remembered your lines it's a big success so i was getting lots of kudos you know when i first go on it's like you were amazing
0: yeah Yeah, (laughs) no one got injured you're great
1: (laughs) you're great exactly so but eventually i i got good at those roles and you know it was a lot of fun it was great i mean i did that show for almost two years i did 22 months and it was the shishi tour it was like the first national so We got to sit down and we went to the bigger cities like Boston, DC, Philly, Chicago, and we got to sit down for six months in each city and get an apartment and get to live in that city. And we were the big show of, you know, the biggest show that had ever come to town. And Cameron always gave us, you know, Cameron McIntosh always gave us a huge opening night party. And so it was a lot of fun. Those days were a lot of fun.
0: That sounds amazing. Oh, you know, just Cameron. Camera McIntosh, (laughs) (laughs) just just throw that in there. Um, But so did you ever, were you ever in chess?
1: So I I finished Les Mis, I left Les Mis, like of the original cast of that first national tour, this, you know, no offense to anyone who's from Detroit, but we were ready to go from Chicago to Detroit. And a lot of us, we'd been in it almost two years. A lot of us were kind of like, I think this is a good time to check out. They're ready to go to Detroit for four months for the winter And we were, so like 10 of us left the show at once. And Richard J. Alexander, who was like maintaining the company, he was like really upset. He was trying to like, I'll give you more money. It's like, I'm good. You know, know, so anyways, a bunch of us left and I went back to New York and there was, I had an agent who I was freelancing with, wasn't signed with, you know, she had just started working with me right after that. And um, she got me an audition for a national tour of chess where they were going to rewrite the book and try to make it work. And Schubert organization who produced it on Broadway were, you know, committed to it and they wanted to try to bring it back to Broadway and fix it, you know? So I went in, I ended up getting in the show and understudying Freddie who sings pity the child, but I want to, I want to talk about the audition itself for the first national tour of Shed. So, you know, my agent gets me the appointment. So this is for all the big wigs, you know, um, the, the, director, Des McAnuff and the producer, and I'm sitting out in the waiting room. And it's like one guy after another is going in and singing pity the child. That was what they're asked to do. And that can be unnerving because you're, you're seeing what they look like in the dressing room. And for example, I see this one guy and it's like, by the way, back then everyone had long hair. So this is like late eighties. Right. And I had long hair for Les Mis, but this kid looks like he looks in my mind like perfect for this for this role. Long hair, he looks tough, you know. He goes in, he sounds amazing to me through the door. It's like that always that was always happening to me. I was always hearing hear someone sing my song just before me, who sounds amazing. And I was just like, I had to give myself a lot of self-talk to like just, you know, kind of detach from that, focus on myself, trust in myself, trust in my work. Um, focus on the work, you know, and I went in, and I did my version of the song. And in my to my ear, I don't think I sang the high notes nearly as well as this guy did. But I didn't see him. I didn't see his work. And when I finished, Des, the director said, that was awesome. He said, I really appreciate your acting in that song. And, and, you know, and I found out the next day, they offered me the understudy to that role. So I just wanna share that. Don't get flipped out when you hear somebody, when you hear anyone, anyone like the five people before you or the 10 people before you or the one person before you. And, and especially if they're singing your song, it's like, so just do your work. You never know what is going on on the other side of that door.
0: You don't know what's happening in their eyes and their face. But you also don't know what the director's looking for. He might just prefer or she might just prefer another person's performance. And that could right. be yours. I mean, why do we have so many people playing Dolly in Hello, Dolly, right? Like right. all these amaz- right. amazing divas or all of the different people that have played Alphaba in Wicked or any role that gets revived or there's replacements for all of those performances are valid and are nuanced in their own mm-hmm. way. And are exciting to watch because they all bring their own essence to it. That's such a great thing. I'm glad that you that you talked about that.
1: So I did. I I did that tour for it. It was only for six months. It did not move to Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> so my boyfriend at the time and I were back in New York City. Auditions start coming up for Miss Saigon on Broadway. Same casting director as Les Miz. Same. Composer, lyricist as Les Mis, same producer as LeMiz. There was a big deal though about Miss Saigon. They spent most of their time casting the leads and then casting all the Asians. They did. They went. You know, it was like a worldwide search to find. They needed so many Asians in the show, and um, the American GIs were like. <laughs> I think the last group they needed to cast or you know spent the time on looking for so they wouldn't even take agent submissions i remember agents were really pissed off at that time about they couldn't get their clients seen for male ensemble male um non-asian ensemble because they what they did is they brought in all the guys who had ever done lamez we It was the same casting agency they knew they were like we have But we have hundreds of guys who we already know, who have already sung this type of material. So they called like a lot of us in. I sang Pity the Child.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yes.
1: Because it was Miss Saigon. They said first tenors have to belt high seats. And it's like, when you see that, there aren't too many songs you can sing that do that. And by the way, there's like lots of other guys saying Pity the Child before and after me. My partner also had an audition. He was Hopi Indian. He looked more Vietnamese than a lot of the Asians they called in. And he was a gymnast and they needed gymnasts. So I, I was always planning like, he's going to get in it. I'm just going to be happy to like look good at the opening night party. You know, awesome. I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was like preparing myself, <laughs> you know, yeah. to like this is how I'm going to deal with this, you know. And um, here's what happened. And this is another, I think, important thing to share. The final callback for those of us call back for the American GIs in that production was the dance call. I think we all sang one more time and then they kept almost all of us for a dance call. Mm-hmm. Now note that in Les Mis, there was no dancing. There's no dance call. There's no dancing except, you know, a little bit ballroom dancing and the wedding scene at the end. This is so important. Luckily, I had taken dance classes four times a week for like a two year period. I was always taking dance classes at this great studio that I found that was right near where I live. I did that instead of going to the gym. That was like my gym. And I got better and better and better. I was I was never a triple threat. I call myself like a two and a half threat because the dance was like, I wasn't a dancer dancer, yeah. but among <laughs> actor singers, like I could pick up a combination better than yep. many of them. And I am so grateful for that because I would not have gotten in, into Miss Saigon, my first Broadway show, if I hadn't been able to do that dance combination. And by the way, you know, I felt, I felt awful because all my buddies from Les Mis over there and most of them weren't dancers, you know, or or couldn't do the combination. And the combination was, you know, it was like difficult enough. I think we even had to do double pirouettes, like jazz double pirouettes, and I could barely do it, but do it well enough, you know, and um, I could pick up the combination. And that's one of the only reasons that I got in that show. I could dance well enough and I could belt high (laughs) C's.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a tough combination of skills to have, to have somebody that can sing that first tenor part and do a double pirouette. I mean, you're just adding to your marketability by taking those dance classes. That's that's such a good lesson.
1: Um, Miss Saigon was a dream come true. My first Broadway show, it was not going in as a replacement. It was starting from first day. Nicholas Heitner was the director. He's one of my favorite people in the world. He was an amazing director. Jonathan Price was, you know, an amazing person just to be able to watch his work and work with him. I ended up getting a little featured role. It was like, it was interesting because they didn't cast like the features until after we were all cast. That happens too. Mm-hmm. There, there weren't a lot of features for the male ensemble in that or for the american gi ensemble the asian guys had a lot more features but like there's this one little section in the in the flashback sequence but that ends with the helicopter and everything with like these little solo lines and they threw they threw me one little solo line they gave somebody else this chunkier solo and i don't know i just sang my little solo line well i guess you know and picked it up quickly and right after that quick vocal audition I'm like rehearsal they had me stay and they said hey we're going to give you this 45 second solo instead you're going to do the chunkier solo can you learn it right now because nick wants to block it in 5 minutes <laughs>
0: no pressure no pressure <laughs> <laughs> so, it was like okay
1: but I mean, I knew the score, you know, I'd listened to yeah. the recording a zillion times. So I picked it up pretty quick. <laughs> and I remember I went into the blocking rehearsal and Nick did a double take. It was like, you're not the guy I picked to do this. But but the musical directors, I guess, vetoed that, you know. Anyway, so this is a little drama and like all the other guys were like, "Who? oh, what? Tom got it? Oh, what happened? You know, so stuff like that happens. Stuff like that happens. What I like to say, too, is that good work brings good work. When they see you doing good work and they like working with you and they see that, you know, just like you're a professional and you're focused, you can pick something up quickly, they're going to lean toward trusting you with stuff more than somebody who might be you know, not as reliable, I guess. I don't know.
0: Or might have an attitude during the process right, or right. make a comment about they wish it were longer. Anything like that. To just take what you're given and do it well gets you so far.
1: Exactly. So the other big story I want to talk about in the middle of Saigon that is an audition story that helps me get Phantom. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I'm doing Miss Saigon on Broadway. Thing come true. They announced... I don't know when maybe eight months into it that they're looking for another understudy for the role of Chris. My friend, Willie Falk was playing Chris. Um, They were looking for a new understudy internally. So they asked any of the guys They just put it up on the call board, any of the guys who want to audition for a new understudy for Chris, they already had two understudies, but for some reason they wanted a third. Eventually they're going to be replacing Willie and yada yada. So, um, Eight of us signed up. And before I even got the audition for Miss Saigon, I heard the score. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the song, Why God Why, like probably every other guy in New York. And I worked I worked on it with my vocal coach. And I loved that song. Mm-hmm. And I worked on it a lot. Never sang it for them because I never got called in for that role. I did my pity the child because I needed to hear high C's. But I love that song. So here comes this audition opportunity. They're looking internally. They're looking for one more guy to understudy. Chris, they want Why God Why, and they want what's called the breakdown scene, which is this big scene at the end where he has to bell tie Bs, I think. So I learned the new material. Auditioning happens. I was just so happy to sing the material. I wasn't nervous. It's one of the only times I wasn't nervous. I was like, I finally get to sing Why God Why for like three people, but three people I respected, you know?
0: Can I just point out, I love that story because it speaks to the fact that you are still an artist and to not be just learning things to get into shows, right? Just learning it because it's a requirement to still have part of you that is pursuing work that like makes you come alive and like makes your heart do something when you sing it, even if there's nothing. Profitable about it in the moment, right. or it doesn't seem productive. You did that work because it touched your soul and you loved it and you wanted to sing it. And then, how many ever months or years later, here's this opportunity that's just like, here you go, Tom, you want to sing that song? You're like, heck yes, I love this yeah. song. Yeah. Just yeah. to remember, like, do things because you love them also. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So the audition came and went. I go to my dinner break, I come back and Mitchell Lemsky says, can I talk to you? And he pulls me aside. This is the man who's going to make the decision. And he goes, I want to tell you that that was an amazing audition. You're not what they're looking for, for the Chris Understudy. They're going to go much younger from now on. Willie was my age and I think I was 30, maybe, maybe I was like 31 or 30, 31 probably at the time. He said, but you need to start working on the phantoms material because he had been the production supervisor of Phantom of the Opera for the five years before and was still very tight with those people. And I was like, Oh, okay. What, what role? And he said, the phantom. And I was like, Oh,
0: <laughs> I just got chills. Just like somebody just saying, this is the next thing here. It is. Start working on this. Oh, that's amazing. Keep now, going, keep going.
1: Again, you know, my, my progress is like kind of, it might sound exciting. It is exciting, but it's always so, it was always so slow. It was like, I was so not ready for that. But it made sense. It was like, cause I, what I was doing with my audition wasn't necessarily right for Chris, but actually looking back, it was really right for the Phantom. And so interesting that he saw that. And he even said to me, and this was, it's such a great thing when someone's an advocate for you, once you get in any of any show, but particularly these long running shows where everybody knows everybody. And he said, he said that there's nowhere else for you to go in this company. You have the one little feature for a white guy in the show, you know, it's like, that's it. You're not, you know, I wasn't Asian. I wasn't young enough. I wasn't black. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a woman. You It was like, So, but he said, there's so much opportunity for you in Phantom, even if you don't start off with the role of the Phantom, there's so much opportunity for you in that show. So it's like, I learned the Phantoms material. He actually got me an appointment to work with the Power Step B over at Phantom, like a working session for 45 minutes. That was the first time I worked with them. Long story short, my acting was great. The singing wasn't as good as it needed to be, but they called me back for a new tour. They were doing of phantom and I went in with the phantoms material and the manager, a bunch of material from the show. They gave me lots of musical sides for Hal Prince. My partner, uh, by that point was sick. He, um, he had contracted AIDS. This was the time when AIDS was, uh, a major problem, you know. I mean, the plague was strong in New York City. This was early 90s, like 90, 91, 92. So they talked to me, they said, we can offer you ensemble in the tour and an understudy, but we know what's going on in your personal life. Take your time. But we want to offer it to you. And I really appreciated the offer. And I said, no, I said, I'll stay, I'll stay in New York and I'll stay with Miss Saigon. I'm happy to be here. You know? Um, sorry.
0: No, there's no need to apologize at all. This is what people have to figure out in there as they go through life, there's going to be times when people that, you know, are sick, or somebody's maybe getting married and you have to make a choice. Like, Do I prioritize my personal life or or what decision do I make here? This is so generous of you to share.
1: Thank you. Um, so time goes by. My partner was sick. He got a little bit better. He was sick again. Something hit me about eight months later. And I just was like, I want to drop my picture resume off again. And I know them at, at Phantom of the Opera. Now I'm just going to bring it to the stage door and leave it with them. And I did, I put a little note in there and it was just, this was kind of a fate thing. I had no idea, but they were actually at that time getting ready to look for a replacement in the Broadway company for ensemble and a cover for a couple of the principal roles. And they called me in again for that, like right after I dropped the picture resume off, it was like New Year's. I remember, I think it was like a New Year's thing. It's like, it's a new year. It's like, I'm going to drop it off and see what happens. And they called me in and I sang for the Pal and the musical supervisor and all the bigwigs. And they um, invited me to join the ensemble in Venom of the Opera on Broadway with a cover. I got to cover one of the principal roles, Monsieur Andre. But I was told, the casting director told me, but uh, Kristen Blodgett, who I adore, she is the musical supervisor doesn't feel that your voice is quite right for the phantom So you won't be getting the phantom understood. And I accepted. I accepted. It. it was like great. I moved over to Phantom of the Opera two weeks later. I learned my track in a week. Replace going in as a replacement is hard. They yeah. don't usually give you if it's ensemble, they don't give you more than a week to learn the whole show. Um so I had a new show. I was in a new show. My partner, you know, was sick, but you know, he was so supportive of me. I was, I was there. I was able to be, to still take care of him. And then about six months later, he passed away. And that was, you know, as much as I was, I knew it was coming. I was devastated. Um, But I had my show, took a few weeks off. They were kind enough to like, let me take three weeks off just to like, Get my bearings again and i continued with the show and i want to say that a lot of people told me that who had already been through losing their partners through aids or other things you know other other deaths um they said you know it's probably going to take a year for most of the grief to lift and i i just want to say that was my experience just after the year anniversary everything turned around and there's two things I, I want to share that helped me get the understudy to the Phantom on Broadway. One was I got an audition for the tour of Kiss of the Spider Woman. It was for the lead role of Molina, and I wanted that role.
0: That was the uh, the Brent Carver the role. The Brent right? Carver role. Right? Yes. Okay.
1: And I saw the show, and I Brent Carver won the Tony for it. I was like in love with his performance, but I I so wanted that role. And this was the time that I called a friend of mine who had become a coach and worked more on the acting side of songs. And he's the one who made me work the way that, that I teach at Amda now, which is he insisted I come up with an action for every single beat, every single acting beat in the song. And to be honest, I had gotten to where I got in my career without quite doing that. I don't know how. Mm. I mean, I knew how to personalize things and how to, but he was tough. And I had to sing lots of material from the show. You know, they were calling me directly in producer call because they knew me and they called me and like two other guys. (laughs) Again, it was like three of us. And because, and I i really worked hard on that audition i had four days i gave up everything for the weekend i worked with this coach three days in a row i worked on my own i had an action for every single beat and and my audition experience changed tremendously because of that when i walked into that audition and and you know and it's it's kind of a thing even though i knew these people i knew I I knew some of them. I knew like the casting director was Vinnie Liff at this time, but he was part of the same casting agency. I had this feeling like he's never going to see me in anything other than ensemble. It's like, I need to change his mind. You know, that was, I was like, uh, you know, kind of a mission of mine, but because I'd worked so hard on the material, I gave up on the mission. I was just like, I just want to do my work. It was the first time I walked into a big deal audition and I wasn't nervous, but the way I like to put it is like, I knew what I literally knew what I was doing like I knew what I was about <laughs> to do like what my doings were with each song what my actions were and it was almost like I walked in and I was I said a quick hello and I was I, my attitude was like I'm so happy you're here but I can't I can't deal with you right now I because I'm busy I have a lot to do you know <laughs> it's like and I walked over to the to the accompanist and who I knew she was like someone who played in the pit of Phantom of the opera. And, you know, she knew the material, so I didn't really have to tell her much. And I started my work and I just went from one song and I was totally in this acting zone. And I went mm-hmm. to the next song song and I was totally in this acting zone. I knew where I was. I knew when it was, I knew who I was singing to and I knew what I was doing beat by beat and I knew what I wanted. When I had a monologue to do. And by the end of it, Vinny Lith, who I thought was never gonna see me as anything other than ensemble, had tears in his eyes.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And the producer, Hal Prince was the director, he wasn't there, but the producer, Garth Drabinsky from Canada, live end in Canada, he offered me the job on the spot. And he said, Oh my gosh, okay, you have this role. I will talk to Hal. We'll work it out. All right. That's the happy news. The next day. <laughs> I forgot who it is now. She was a Miss America for a while and she took over for Cheetah Rivera. She took over and um, she ended up getting rave reviews and it changed everything with the tour. The tour wasn't going to go out right away because a lot of people from Broadway, they thought they were going to close Broadway soon and that she wasn't going to work out. Well, she worked out like majorly and it gave it a new life and the show extended. So Happy news, great audition, get the role on the spot, falls through, next step is the accompanist who is there. She talks to Kristen Blodgett, the supervisor of Phantom of the Opera. It's like, oh, guess who just got the role of Molina in the tour of Kiss the Spider Woman? It's like Tom O'Leary. So that's one piece I need to share. The other piece is this, right? So keep that in mind. (laughs) The other piece is this. Um, We would have understudy rehearsal Every week in Phantom of the Opera, I was understudying Mr. Andre. I, I'd already gone on for the role like 40 times by that point. This is an awful thing to say. And I know this awful. I'm not proud of this. But we would often have a really bad attitude about going to the understudy rehearsals. We're like, oh, God, why do we have to go to this understudy? It's like doing a ninth show in of the week. we're You know, eight shows a week is hard. Week after week, week after week. We have to go to this understudy rehearsal. So rude, you know, but that's where we were. And I finally had this, like, come to Jesus moment with myself, this particular understudy rehearsal day on a Thursday. And it's like, how dare you have a bad attitude about going to this rehearsal? It's like, so many of your friends are envious and jealous of you for having, you know, being in a Broadway hit show, even if it's ensemble and you only get to go on from Sir Andre once in a while. And I had come to peace with like, I'm never playing the Phantom, that's okay. My voice, she said my voice wasn't right for it. I'm happy with my lot, but I had a bad attitude about, about understudy rehearsals. And I just decided that day, I'm going to this rehearsal with gratitude. And I did, I went with gratitude to that rehearsal. I was in a good mood. I was happy to be working on whatever I was working on. I was happy to be working with the other understudies, the ones who were newer and helping them out. Well, Kristen Blodgett, musical supervisor, was out there in the the house that day. She wasn't always there for understudy rehearsals, but I think it's no coincidence that she came to me after that rehearsal and said, you know what, no promises, but I wanna hear you sing the Phantom Material again for me. And I was like, oh,
0: Okay, great. You know. And this was after the accompanist had told her That's that true. you got so, the role.
1: Two parts. Yes.
0: So she's like, I might not I might lose this guy. I might lose this
1: guy. He had such a good attitude in rehearsal today. He's so nice. He's so easy to work with. Let's hear it. Let's hear what he has. And to
0: somebody do. else is casting him in the lead, right, of this right. other show. Right. So maybe yeah. he is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I will
1: say she was right. My voice wasn't right for the Phantom when I first auditioned for that show and first got in. And you know why? Because I've been doing this Saigon for two years. Yeah. And that score is a very different sound. That score is like, well, I was screaming high C's more than once, yeah. you know, and it's, it's like a very high, like a high pitched rock pop score. Right. Yeah. And Femme of the Opera, even the ensemble stuff that I was singing for over a year by that point, is a much warmer. It's, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber, in that show at least, has a bit of a legit sound. I mean, the, the word opera is in it, you know. And so my voice literally had warmed up just from having done ensemble in that show for a year and a half. And I did work with Bill Schumann, my voice teacher, who I would check in with occasionally. And I said, Bill, I have another audition for Phantom. Can you help me? And he gave me a couple little tweaks. And it was like, it helped a lot. I sang for them like a couple days later. And she said, yeah, we want you to start understudying the role. And wow. I, And that happened 13 months after my partner passed away. And I have to say, it was like, it was like a God thing. It was like, I knew it was him giving me this gift. I felt like creatively you know, the grief had lifted and I felt creatively, the wind was at my back and yeah. I was so happy and eager and motivated to be working on that role, even just in an understudy rehearsal once a week, you know, and yeah. now I was really excited to go to understudy rehearsal, you know, because it was
0: I'm sure me yes. working
1: on the lead role, <laughs> you know, but it was such a creative time for me. And, and the other thing about understanding or just being in the ensemble and then getting a chance to understate you later on is I had been kind of watching the other guys who have been playing the Phantom up to that point, I probably had watched like four or five different guys playing the Phantom. And there was like one section of the show toward the end of the show. And now I mean, they're all amazing, but I always felt like acting wise, there was such there was like a really tricky last 20 minutes of the show acting wise, like how do you solve the acting problems? of the last 20 minutes of the show. And I was so eager to like cut my teeth on that, like really figure that out as an actor. And I felt ready. So that's how I started understudying the Phantom. It went really well. Six months later, they put me on for the first time. Davis Gaines, who was playing the Phantom, had a week vacation. It's always a big deal, like, which understudy is gonna get the weekend shows, you know, is a thing. It was like this political thing, yeah. you know? and they gave me the weekend shows. I was like, oh my God, I invited everybody I knew. I'm going on for the Phantom for four shows. This is it, guys, you know, come see me now. <laughs> they all came to see me <laughs> and it went so well. It was like, I just felt in the zone. I couldn't even hold the last note as long as I was supposed to hold it, but the audience still went crazy at the end of the show. Now maybe that's just built into the show, but I think it was a lot of it's because of the acting that I brought yeah. to it, you know?
0: Again, it's that idea that there you've watched four or five people. There may have been even more that had played the role, right? Oh, and yeah. Maybe that was just in your tenure there. Yeah, yeah. And huge shoes to step into, an amazingly uh, popular role. The songs are just like hits one after another. Right, right. You've been told your voice wasn't right. like So I can only imagine like the head games that's going on and resurfacing. And then all of a sudden you get this opportunity and you're like, yeah, but what I can do is this. Mm-hmm. This is what I can bring mm-hmm. that I, have, I haven't seen other people do it like I would want to do it. And there's just, there's always room for another person's interpretation. Oh, yeah.
1: And, and yeah, so it went well enough that they wanted Hal Prince to see me do it. They worked it out that I went on for the next two Mondays, uh, Monday night shows. We did Monday night shows. We had Sunday off Mm -hmm. and he wasn't able to see it, but he sent his right hand woman, Ruthie. I'm forgetting Ruthie's last name. And she gave the thumbs up. And then the other story that might make me cry is... I'm called down to the stage manager's office on a Wednesday before the matinee. Tom O'Leary comes to the stage manager's office, and I'm thinking, oh, no, now I'm in trouble. What did he do wrong this time, you know? And I go to the stage manager. It's like five minutes before curtain, you know? And I go in, and the room is empty except for Hal Prince. And he wanted to give me the role. Himself, he wanted to be the person who told me. I just thought it was like the classiest thing. He said, "I'm so sorry I wasn't able to see you go on, but I've heard amazing things, and I would love for you to take over the role on the national tour. Um, would you like that?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, sure." And um, that's how the tour happened. End up doing the tour for 15 months, but after 15 months, they asked me to come back to Broadway. To take over the title role on Broadway and I did it for My two gosh. and a half years. So I ended up doing the role for three and a half years.
0: Yeah. So how do you keep that fresh? How do you stay present in, I mean, it's such a dramatic journey, the whole, like every night to be going through that. It's like being in cabaret, you know, like Sally's just like a mess every right. time. Right. Um. Like, how do you keep that alive for yourself?
1: Well, I want to say that one one big thing that helped me was in the first city that I opened in Columbus, Ohio, I got a mixed review from the big critic in that town. And, you know, I probably shouldn't have read the review, but I did. And I was devastated uh, from a mixed review. And it did a mind game on me, if, you know, however you say that. And for me, it felt like the worst thing that could happen. It's like, oh, my God, I just opened in a city and the critic thought I wasn't as good as so-and-so. Th- that's awful to like be that hard on myself. I know that. But what it did for me, I, I was like, so what am I going to do now? I asked myself. And thankfully, I came up with the answer. You've got to focus just on the work. I was so grateful that I was working with a Christine at that time who was an amazing actress, Diane Fratton-Tony who is now Diane Sutherland, I believe. And she's an amazing actress, you know, had studied, like I had taken tons of acting classes in addition to, you know, training as a singer. And I just started focusing more on my, I mean, she's my scene partner in the whole show. I have no scenes other than with Christine. And I was gifted with an amazing actress. And and the rest of that six weeks in Columbus, Ohio, I just was like, you're not going to focus on the review. You're going to focus on her. You just look in her eyes and get her to do what you want her to do, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Fall in love with her and, you know, get her to feel the same way about you. And something grew between us like this. Then it got more and more nuanced as those six weeks went by. And I felt so grounded and so great. It was like my favorite time as an actor. Were was basically that first year on the road uh, with Phantom playing the title role because it was new enough. And the next city, by the way, I I got like raves of raves, like and I knew it was just because I focused on the work, you know. And from that point on, it was like that was the big lesson: it's like just focus on the work, Tom, and just focus on your scene partner. Now, how did I keep it fresh for three and a half years? Well, one of the things that helped actually was that there was always a regular Christine and an alternate Christine. And then there were understudy Christine's and then they were always replacing the main Christine or the alternate. I was, by the time I finished three and a half years, I probably played opposite 25 Christine's. I'm not joking. Oh my gosh. Not exactly. So
0: it's like 25 different versions of the show for you. So
1: it was, it was like, you know, I get, I get to fall in love with somebody new today, you know. Yeah. It's like, who am I falling in love with today? You know, and and it would change each. It would change me. I mean, it, it you know, and if like when I moved back to Broadway in the role, I was playing opposite Tracy Shane for quite a while, and she was different, you know, and we developed our thing, and it and at times it was challenging for me. I was used to a certain thing, but I will say that the challenges. Helped me keep it fresh. And then Hal Prince started seeing me in the show once I moved. He didn't even see me on the road. He just brought me back to Broadway because he had read reviews and stuff. And then he saw me finally and he would check in. I mean, the reason Phantom it has run for so long, and you know, may he rest in peace, you know, my idol Hal Prince. But when he was alive, he was checking in with that show every few months. And he would call like snap rehearsals the next day. He would yell at us. You know, he was tough. you know. He maintained that show. He insisted we keep it afresh. So when he started working with me, I'd already been doing the role for 15 months. He gave me new things, very new things to work on. Basically he said, like the big note was, I see that you're really smart. I love a smart actor in this role. I see how vulnerable you are in this role. I see the emotion you bring to the role. Those are all great things, he said, but you're missing the part of him that is scary.
0: The monster.
1: The monster. Yeah. And I I was like, I was confused. I was like, yeah, but the critics really liked it. (laughs) (laughs) They really liked what I did. You know, it's like, but this is Hal Prince. It's like, he was a living legend. It was like, okay, all right. And it took me a while, but I had to find my way of giving him what he wanted, because I so wanted to give Hal Prince what he wanted, because I so trusted him. He knows the show, he knows how it has to work, more than any critic in a newspaper. And uh, I, eventually I found how to give him what he wanted result-wise and keep it fresh and organic for me. And it took me, that's the, the advantage of a long run. I might've not found that for like four weeks but I had four weeks to experiment and find it. Um, So it was always, we were always in process.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit. This amazing, like just hitting every single, like of the mega musicals, these dramatic pop rock musicals of the time period, just so cool. And I think a lot of us think of them as being like vocal shows, right? Like really dramatic vocal. And what you keep saying throughout this whole time is that doing the work, having those acting beats you know laid out for every phrase was like a turning point for you so i'm really interested and i've gotten to see this through our work together how you teach that work how do you approach a i mean song?
1: first i learned this later in my career and i'm not proud to say that but this is one of the most important things and that is first get all the facts like even if You're just doing a song for an audition and you're gonna bring your own thing to it. I think you should know what the circumstances were in the original production in the context of the show. And certainly if you get cast in the role, just get all the facts and keep reading the libretto over and over and you know, be a good detective and keep looking for clues. Uh, There are so many more clues in the script and in the score even in the lyrics of your one song that you might be working on, there's so many more clues than we, and I say we because I was guilty of this, than we might think there are. I made, I used to make the mistake of like jumping to conclusions, like making assumptions. Oh, this is like yada, yada, yada. You know, and I would just go off on a in a direction that wasn't necessarily what the song was, you know, not proud to say. So really like keep looking at the material and go what are the given circumstances who are you where are you when is it and with those given circumstances develop you know who are you singing to and what do you want from that person but you can't i wouldn't just pull it out of thin air and i'm afraid that i used to do that and i think that a lot of young people might do that oh i love this song i just want to sing it and oh i'll make a couple choices okay you know instead of like going to the material you know, the source material and going, what's going on here? Why did they write this? You know? So that's like the first thing.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned when you were talking about Christine, you're like, well, I had, I focused on trying to get her to do this, to fall in love with me. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Not just that, you know, the context of your character, but you're actually trying to get something out of someone else. Perhaps It's
1: like more and more. It's like, I see that the objective has to, I mean, the objective is like the next most important thing. What do you want? What do I want? You know? And it has to be something I want to get from the other person. And even if it's like, the focus is universal. Okay. What am I trying to get from the world? What am I trying to get from God? If it's a God focused song, self-focused song, what am I trying to get from myself? There has to be an objective of something I'm trying to get from the other person, and hopefully that's in conflict with the circumstances of the play, you know, to give you, that's
0: yeah. That's what makes oh, it interesting. To, yeah. So
1: you have your work cut out for you. You have a reason to sing the song and more than just one verse chorus. If it's like verse chorus, verse chorus, verse you know, it's like, why do I keep singing? Because it's usually because I haven't gotten what I really, really, really need yet. Even if it's a love song and what I need to do by the end of it is seal the deal. Like, can, can I get a commitment from you? Yes, I really love, but how committed are you really? You know, seal the deal. You know, I use that a lot. Yeah. Focus is so important. Um, who am I singing to? I already mentioned, like, it can be direct focus. If the person is there, if it's an audition, you have to see them there and how are they responding back to you? Um, self-focused, universal focus, um, audience focus, if it's audience. Yeah, I mean, those are the main things. And then the thing that I harp on the most because it's probably the least fun <laughs> is breaking it down beat by beat and coming up with a strong, specific action of what I'm actually doing to the other person to get what I want. I believe in that so much because, as I share it in my story, it's like it's what turned things around for me. It's what changed the mind of a casting director who had seen me as ensemble only before and then had tears in his eyes and was like, Mm -hmm. okay, you have this lead role now. And then it led to the big lead role that I ended up getting, you know? So actions, it's like, I just believe in it so much. And it's not, it's not the first way that I think, or I do now because I've been teaching it for so long, but I just want to acknowledge that as a young actor, I would think feelings, What's going on here? Well, I'm feeling really um angry here. And and I don't, and I'll say it here, I, I joke with my students. I don't mean it to sound snarky. I always have to preface preface it with that, but I don't care how you feel. I care what you're doing to get what you want, and then I'll feel. If I see someone on stage fighting for what they want, then I feel for them because I relate to that. But if I see someone on stage just, you know, indulging in feelings, then I'm kind of not engaged I don't I'm not moved by it
0: because they're already experiencing the feelings and you're just observing it I'm just yeah. observing
1: I'm observing I'm like oh it looks like they're having going through something
0: can you give us an example some actions like what does that mean I know there's a million
1: yeah there's a million so and I use this actions book the action the actors the source you know and there's like 3,000 actions in the book it's a little book you might want to get it for any of your listeners um <laughs> And I don't like the real academic actions. You know, it has to be something that I relate to that means something to me. So I wouldn't just look something up in a book and go, oh, that sounds good. If it's a word I wouldn't use, I wouldn't use it. But there's another phrase that I got from another, it was actually from a directing book that says, if it's an action that you can get your shoulder behind, if it's a verb, you can get your shoulder behind and push for 10 minutes, then it's good. So and that changed my mind about using the action to boast or brag into impress because I can't boast you, but I can impress you. I can really work on impressing Corey right now as I'm looking at you and get my shoulder behind it and push for a while until I find that that's not working anymore, and then I try a different action. If it, if I'm playing a role where I'm really angry at somebody, I could I could play rub it in their face. I use verb phrases sometimes, not just a verb. But verb phrases, as long as, again, I could I could play that for a while. I could get my shoulder behind that and push and try to rub it in your face for a while until that doesn't work. Then maybe I go to charm you. I mean, that would be a big change, but, you know, to, to charm, because I could charm you for a while. But we have to be careful, I think, with a lot of people want, and I understand, trust me, and I always tell my students, I totally get why you would choose this, and maybe you could even use it. But verbs like to proclaim or declare, it's like, I just think come off too general, you know, what are you doing to the other person that you can get your shoulder behind and push for a while? And that's a good little test. And it's better to phrase the action, I blank you, or I try to blank, I'm impressing, you. I impress Mm. you, I charm you to rub it in your face to, um, you know, to butter you up. That could happen at the beginning of a song, for example. Before I need to break the the hard news of like, you know, in in Beauty and the Beast, where she's talking to her father, breaking the news, "I'm leaving. I'm going with the Beast." And you know, it's like she's got to uh, butter him up first. You know, she's got to reassure him, and then mm. and then break the news and stand her ground or take a stand that she's gonna she's gonna be displeasing him by going with the other guy. You know?
0: So how does this affect the singing part of it? Cause we can't just approach songs purely from just like analyzing all of the text, which we have to, and that's part of like the very beginning, but c- just can you speak to either how you teach or how you have performed yourself? Like, how does that marry to the singing part of it? How do you work on the singing part of it? Is it separate? Is it at the same time? Well, I
1: mean, you have to learn what's on the page. You have to learn the music correctly <laughs> And I say that because a lot of people will listen to someone singing it on YouTube or something, which might not be what's on the page. And then you have to relearn it. If you, you know, uh, the last, the last thing you want to do is go into an audition, especially where they know the song or they ask for a song and not sing the right notes or the right rhythms, you know, and, and, you know, for me as a performer, as a young performer, that was the most tedious part. All right. I think I was a little more of an actor first than a singer. And I, I, I was very grateful that I was gifted with a, a good voice, you know, and that helped me get a lot of work, but but I didn't think in musical terms. So I had to like really look at what's on the page. I had to listen to my tracks over and over and over. I had to work with, you know, coaches or teachers or my musical director. And if a musical director gave me a correction on a harmony, I needed, I needed to drill it a hundred times before I went back to rehearsal the next day or else, you know, I I was not going to be the person they were going to give the next solo to. Or they might even start asking about, you know, who's his understudy? How can we get rid of him? You know, Um, so I learn what's on the page note wise, rhythm wise, dynamics, all the instructions. Like some composer lyricists give you tons of instructions and some don't. But if they do take those instructions, you know, if it starts piano, don't go mezzo piano until it says mezzo piano. If if there's no double forte, like lately in my classes, I'm like, there's no double forte till the end of the song, guys. I'm not (laughs) sure why we're starting double forte. (laughs) So it's like all of that has to be a part of the work. Mm. I would say musical theater acting is the hardest thing as actors because you have to do all the acting and all the singing work, all the musical work, and then you marry the two. So I'm glad you asked because I had totally left that part out of it. You know, and it's like <laughs> it's it has to happen. It just has to happen, you know. And I think the actions can help you if you're sing, if you're having trouble with high notes in this double forte. Then pick a really kick butt action to help you with that, and that may yeah. help or change your substitution or who you're singing to. Or but I often I think like. Raising the stakes or picking a stronger action will help you with those harder to sing notes or notes you might think you can't sing yet. So the actions will help the singing, but basically you have to learn the song correctly first. And sometimes that just means drilling it and drilling it and drilling it and drilling.
0: You know, we don't have too much time to talk about it, but you are also a director. And I just wanted to ask, like, what do you look for? now that you're on the other side of the table. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for from actors when they come in and audition and specifically for um, musical theater auditions? Right,
1: right. As you could probably guess, you know, I'm looking for somebody who's gonna act this, this song as well as they sing it. I, I will say that I don't believe that if you have someone who can't sing it, that you're going to teach them in three weeks how to sing. You know, There are some directors like who insist on getting the actor And musical directors like, you can teach them to sing, right? I don't believe in that at all. Um, But I also think if somebody sings like gorgeously, but the acting isn't there, I would probably not be looking for that. Let's put it that way. You know, that probably wouldn't work for me. I mean, I mean, there's no acting there. And if I Really was like, okay, but they look so right and they sound so great. Let me throw some adjustments out and see how they do. And all of a sudden they're taking adjustments like really great. Then maybe I would consider that. But I would be really careful myself to cast someone who sings something beautifully, but doesn't have the acting going on, especially the focus. If I see someone in an audition, like one thing that my pet peeve is just mine. Other people might not mind this, but I i don't like when someone just stares at a spot on the wall and sings straight out for the whole thing. That makes me a little crazy And an audition. And that's such a personal preference, is it?
0: Because A lot of people give that as like something to I know. do.
1: So, so take it with a grain of salt, listeners. It's like, but that's just my thing. I'm like, I don't think it looks human. And I'd rather you look human. It's like, yeah, place where the person is, if you're singing to a person, you know, a little Mm -hmm. right or left to center. And, you know, but you don't even have to start looking at them, like not to the piano, not to the pianist, use the first two bars, give yourself two bars to like get into it, just actually act but don't stare yeah. straight out like take those two bars as a self-focused moment and then if it is to a person like slowly raise your eyes like during the first third maybe it's almost like lifting a curtain and then you know because we don't stare at people we don't stare at people that's why I don't yeah. buy it it i know it's only 16 bars and you do want to face more or less i say in a 90 degree you know angle out front but moving my eyes from just a little right of center to center or vice versa reads big you know, that's a big change. Yeah. And so yeah. I always say, shake it up focus wise, just shake up the focus a little bit, be, you know, have some of that to yourself and some of that to the person, feel it out with your imaginary scene partner. When would I look at that person? And when would I take my eyes away and have a self focused moment or a mo- moment where I'm seeing something out here because I'm making it up as I go along.
0: And would you map that out? Like you would map out actions? Probably.
1: If it's just 16 or 32 bars. Yeah. just put like you know, focus at the person here, take the focus, you know, self, take the focus out, focus back at the person, you know, that ha- has to happen in rehearsal though. You have to feel it out. Don't dictate it to yourself before you start working on it. Cause then it could come off robotic. So I do think it needs to be worked out. You need to feel that out and maybe it's going to change, or maybe you're savvy and comfortable enough to like, just let it just let that go moment to moment in your audition. Just know mm-hmm. that you don't want to stare at the person. I I if you're being real with somebody, I don't think you would stare at them. But you're you're right. It's it's a some people have a different, you know, school of thought on yeah. that.
0: Well, I just want to thank you again for being here. This has just been such a delight. <laughs> thank
1: you so much, Corey. I love chatting with you. I love seeing you. Thank you for everything you do.
0: Wow. What an interview. Tom was so incredibly generous and I just absolutely loved hearing all the stories about how we auditioned and didn't get the role, but then later got it in some other roundabout way. It's just like, ah, okay, I'm not the only one that's frustrated when my path is circuitous, right? Um, So I hope you enjoyed this. There are so many takeaways from this episode, but here are just a few that stood out to me. Number one, be prepared to answer questions and chat with the director in the audition room and have a second song ready to go. Number two, Tapping into your emotions can actually help you tap into higher registers of your voice. Number three, sometimes you find a song that really shows off your voice and connects to you as a performer. Don't be afraid to use it often for your auditions. Number four, don't worry about how other performers sound or if they're singing your same song. Trust in yourself, trust in your work. You never know what is going on on the other side of the audition room door. Number five, diversify your skills by taking dance classes regularly. You never know when having those skills will be the deciding factor between you and another actor. Number six, good work brings good work. Number seven, instead of trying to impress the director in the audition, focus on thoroughly preparing your song beat by beat so you can be totally in the zone when you're performing. Number eight, approach all your rehearsals and performances with gratitude. People notice. Number nine, when learning a new song, get all the facts and read the libretto like a detective looking for clues about your character. Number 10, be clear about your objective. Why are you singing the song and how are you going to get what you want? Number 11, take your acting to the next level by coming up with a strong, specific action of what you're doing to the other person to get what you want. Number 12, learn the music as it is written on the page and follow the instructions that the composer gives you. Thank you for listening today. If you want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at studying the song or at Corey Yamaoka, or better yet swing on by coreyamaoka.com and sign up for my email list for weekly tips and the latest news from studying the song. I'm your host Corey Yamaoka, and I will see you next time right here on studying the song, the podcast that helps musical theater singers figure out what to sing and how to sing it. So you can shine in the audition room.